Welcome to episode 10 of Oklahoma Appeals, the podcast. I'm Gabe Bass, and I'm here with my co-host, former staff attorney at the Oklahoma Supreme Court and current appellate advocate, Jana Knott. And we're starting something new today. That's right. So we are doing our first series on the podcast, and it's called Practicing in the District Courts Across the State. And so we are really excited to kick off the series with our guest today, the Honorable Sheila Stinson, District Judge in Oklahoma County. So welcome, Judge Stinson, and thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Judge Stinson, if you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background. Well, I am originally from Boise City out in the Panhandle. There's not a lot of us judges are from the Panhandle in Oklahoma County, a few of us, but I went to UCO for undergrad, then OU for law. After that, I started at an insurance defense civil litigation firm, did that for several years, traveled the state doing subrogation and defense, some business litigation. I lobbied a little, while, a little bit with the state legislature, and then after that, I moved on to a different firm and did just more business litigation, some medical nursing home malpractice defense work. And then in 2013, I think I opened my own firm and we did a lot of estate litigation was primarily the focus, but we had an oil and gas attorney, um, an attorney who did some adoptions, just kind of a different hybrid of different specialties. Um, and then in 2017, I was appointed as a special judge in Oklahoma County. Then in July of 2020, which feels like forever ago at this point, um, I was appointed by the governor as a district judge in Oklahoma County. Well, you have a, a very a varied background and, and a lot of different experiences in the practice of law and have been out there in the trenches and private practice. So that's always uh, nice from the practitioner's perspective to know that the judge has walked in your shoes and, and knows uh, some of the trials and tribulations on, the, on that side of the bench. So how was the transition from private practice to the bench? I think it, I was contemplating this the other day for another thing I was participating in, and it really made me have to go back and kind of remember that first couple months on the bench. And I think one of the hardest things or more challenging part was for the 15 years before that being an advocate for a client um, and, you know, believing in that cause and, and arguing and negotiating and fighting for a particular cause to going onto the bench where you're neutral. And um, even whenever you feel compelled to lead a case or to push a case a certain direction um, and just realizing that that is not at all your role and having to step back from the advocacy portion of it where that's so ingrained in you from law school on of being an advocate to then just having to remain completely neutral and you know just ruling on the law at that point you you have to wherever the law takes you is is the side that you're advocating for at that point and it's that's the hardest transition just I think mentally sometimes is to go from um, fighting for a, a position or a side to just having to do what you think is right based on what the law is. That's interesting. So tell us um, a little bit more about your time as a special judge in Oklahoma County. 
2017, I was appointed by the district judges as a special judge, and I was assigned to a domestic docket. So I know different counties are different, but in Oklahoma County, we have five special judges assigned to the family and domestic docket. So I had a family and domestic docket for a little over three years, and I heard divorces, paternities, some BPOs that got transferred with companion um, divorce or paternity cases. And so that was primarily um, my entire docket for three years. I loved almost every day of it. I, I missed <laughs> the family and domestic docket. There's some wonderful attorneys on it. And, and those, the judges on family and domestic dockets, I think are making a difference every single day. It's a very um, intimate area of law, very personal, very, um, people get very invested in it. And so it's, it's a tough area because the decisions are hard and affect people on a daily basis. But I really enjoyed my time on the family domestic docket. So you did mention that you were appointed in July of this year by Governor Stitt to serve as a district judge, which it does feel like forever ago. I feel like you've been on the district bench for, you know, years now, but it's only been since July. So, um, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and kind of what that transition has looked like. I was appointed, I stayed on the domestic docket for about a month because there was potentially some anticipated transition on the district judge bench in Oklahoma County and it ended up happening. Judge Pemberton was appointed to the court of civil appeals mm -hmm. shortly after my appointment to the district bench. And so I was then appointed as the chief judge of our juvenile division to replace judge Pemberton who had been appointed. And so in Oklahoma County, it's, it's a little odd the the presiding with the agreement of the chief justice make the appointment of the chief judge at juvenile. So I am out here. There's five of us total. There's me and four special judges at juvenile. And so I stayed on my domestic docket until Judge Pemberton was appointed. And then he moved on to the court of civil appeals. And then I moved out here, um, out here being a different building than our downtown courthouse on September 1. I took over as the chief district judge of juvenile. So I have a juvenile docket now, and that was the, the, the main transition from special to district was the change of the docket and assuming the administrative roles at the juvenile division. So tell our listeners just what kind of cases are you seeing now then that you're at the juvenile division? I have primarily half my cases are deprived probably over half my cases are deprived. So children that have been taken into custody um, and are in the, the care and custody of DHS. And so I have those cases. And then um, the other portion of my docket are juvenile delinquent cases. So criminal matters as they relate to children under 18. I kept a few of a handful of my family and domestic cases that were on the verge of trial or that I had heard and needed to close out a few things and felt it was just more judicial economy for me to keep a few of them than to transition that into a new judge based on where they were in the case. So I have a few, I, I think I kept about seven, I'm down to about three domestic cases at this point, um, but the prim primarily my docket is made up of the deprived and the delinquent cases. 
And you mentioned uh, the presiding judge and the chief justice actually approve your position out at the juvenile uh, center, but how are the rest of the dockets in Oklahoma County assigned? We, we being the district judges, vote with the associate judges from Oklahoma and Canadian County, um, making up the seventh judicial district. And so we vote on a, amongst ourselves and vote on a presiding judge. And that presiding judge is the person that makes the assignments of all the dockets, both for specials and the associate and district judges. So in Judge Elliott does that in Oklahoma County. Um, he assigns the dockets for all the specials, the one associate, and then all the district judges for Oklahoma County. Okay, interesting. I think that's good for practitioners to know just how the administrative side um, of, of things work, especially in our, in our state district courts. That is interesting, and uh, I guess that's just a, a chance you take uh, when you decide to take the bench that you could be assigned to one of the dockets that you may not have a lot of experience with. And I was hired or appointed at the same time Judge McCormick was in Oklahoma County. The two of us, we interviewed at the same time and they had two slots. And so the first time we met, there was a preliminary criminal docket open and a divorce docket. And we met, he came from the public defender's office and I was coming from the civil world. So we had high hopes of where we thought we each brought strength to which docket. And so we were glad that we got the appointments that we did where, you know, that's, that's one of the questions they ask in your interview, are you willing to take whatever docket is available to you? And the answer is yes. But um, I was very thankful in the beginning to at least know that docket and be somewhat familiar with civil litigation and knowing what different pleadings and, and the discovery code and all that applied <laughs> to the docket I had. So I was thankful. And I would imagine that the presiding judge does probably take the background of the of the bench, uh, so to speak, in in mind and the preferences of the different judges, and and try to match judges up with the docket that makes the most sense with them, um, to the extent that it's possible. And I think that that was somewhat in in the mindset when the juvenile docket came open is that I was coming off of a domestic docket, which has a lot of similarities to a deprived docket. And I really enjoyed that docket. And so I think that was your background, I think, and I hope comes into play with your assignments. We recently talked in one of our episodes about how the Oklahoma Supreme Court had ordered each district across the state to determine on a courthouse by courthouse basis how to handle the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we were wondering what orders are in place in Oklahoma County regarding COVID-19. And also, since you're actually at a different facility, uh, if, if you're doing anything different at, at your facility compared to what, how things are being handled at the downtown courthouse. We are currently under a couple of different administrative orders in Oklahoma County that Judge Elliott assigned. The most relevant one right now is we are under a, I'm calling it a slowdown. It's for emergencies only is what we're supposed to be hearing in person um, through January 4th. So from before Christmas to January 4th, we are on an emergency only in-person hearing. So uh, then there was a previous administrative order that's still in place as far as staggering dockets 
you know, trying to keep as many people out of the courthouse as you can at a certain time. So even during jury times, we're supposed to stagger our, our juries, st stagger breaks, try to social distance in the courtroom. I think the overall in the building, it's a mask mandate, um, but each judge has the discretion in their own courtroom of how to apply that. I require mask when we do in-person hearings, I require masks in my courtroom, but I think each judge is approaching that maybe a little bit different, but there's an administrative order just encouraging that social distancing and mainly just try to limit the number of people in the courthouse that don't have to be in the courthouse. Um, how we're doing it a little bit different out here in the juvenile building is all five of us judges are primarily video hearings. And so I am still doing video deprived and delinquent hearings, um, which is, is going pretty well. Um, but we also started back jury terms a couple months ago. And so those of course are in person. And so how we're addressing that is we are doing the jury panel questioning in a large, very large conference room in a different portion of our building. And then when the jury is selected, moving them down into the courtroom where they can spread out. But none of us had big enough courtrooms to really spread out the panel. So we just swap out um, conference rooms. And so that's one change that's a little bit different out here than what they're doing downtown. What in your experience has been the most challenging aspect of dealing with the pandemic uh, in the context of you know the, your work as a judge and the functioning of our courts? I think the biggest issue is balancing safety of the public and our staff with um, just access to the courts and being effective and efficient in what we do and our time and allowing people to still access the courts, but putting some type of limits on how that's done in order to keep the public safe but also I have to take into account my staff myself other judges um, and so that's just where that line is of how people can access we have issues out here sometimes people don't have enough data to log in to a video hearing mm. and mm. so it's trying to figure out how to get them access or do they just need to come in person and so every day it's a new day juggling, juggling technology versus um, who should just come in person, but then if they come in person and they're sick, what, where do I need to send them at that point? So it's just a whole new, new layer video hearings. I've realized um, lose their formality. That's an issue I'm, I'm addressing a little bit right now, especially in some of my criminal matters is I think there's some formality and importance with coming to a courtroom and standing in front of a judge and just the overall procedure of it all that is lost on a video and and addressing appropriately and not using the restroom during a video or not eating <laughs> ice cream like all things that we've had happen. <laughs> um, you know, some of us just assume that that's what you would do but I realize and even attorneys I have issues with attorneys you know smoking in the middle of a hearing or or doing something, uh, so I, that's the biggest issue. Well, I don't wanna say that's the biggest issue. That is an issue right now, is I think when you lose the formality of it all, it loses a little bit 
of the importance of the hearing. And mm -hmm. so I'm trying to get that back slowly <laughs> and surely one one little comment at a time to <laughs> defendants or to attorneys of, about proper conduct. Also an issue we have right now is just confidentiality. Our hearings are all closed because they all involve minors. And so it's really hard to regulate who's in the room during a video hearing. And frequently it's someone that you would not let in the courtroom. So you tell them to leave, but you don't know that they've actually left. And so I'm we're running into some of those issues um, and those are very specific to my docket, but um, those are definitely just things that we never really contemplated. And so we're slowly trying to decide when to move back to more in-person so you can regulate some of that a little bit more. And I've had to turn off, no one else can record the videos during the video hearing. No one can, I've had to turn off chat. You know, there's just different things that, that really, you never really contemplated that you, you have more control over in person. Um, but you know, you can't video a hearing in person. You can't video it when we're on a computer. So those are all new things that I'm sure everyone's dealing with across the country. And some people are probably further ahead than we are of how to address them, but um, you don't really know they're an issue until they become an issue. And then we're having to kind of spot treat them as we go, but we're getting there. For our attorneys that are listening and who practice in Oklahoma County, what are three practice pointers that you would give? My first one is always read the local rules. Each judicial district has different local rules. They're all available online. And if you're going to practice in a specific area of the state, know what each of their uh, local rules are. And I still have to go back and reread them sometimes. I try to do that every three to six months because you kind of, they kind of run together after a while. And so go just read the local rules. We all kind of do things a little bit different. And so also read the district court rules because those apply to everyone, but uh, just make sure they're all available online. And especially if you're going to travel across the state, I did that a lot with my insurance defense um, practice. And so it was always kind of difficult sometimes to remember which rules applied where. So it's good to always just have a little book of them in your car. So you'll know if you're doing something you're not supposed to do, but that's the biggest one. That's my first one I always give is, you know, read those local rules. Even if you only practice in Oklahoma County, they're good to read every few months just to remember. Cause I always am writing little notes on orders and sending them back to people about which local rule was not complied with at the when they submitted an order. Um, another issue would be all the judges, we kind of do things different, whether that makes sense or not. And so if you don't know, call the judges staff and ask. Um, but if you do that, also remember you need to be respectful when you call and ask because you're, you're asking the staff to give you a little bit of insight or how that practice, how that judge likes certain things to be done. I know, especially when I was one of five on the domestic docket, we all had different procedures or all did our motions to enter different, or we all did different types of scheduling orders and things. And so I know my staff's always more than happy to help because it cuts down on the amount of times they have to do it if, if it's done right the first time. And so um, just call and ask if you don't, especially if you don't primarily practice in Oklahoma County, um, always call and ask and, and see what the preference would be about certain things. So that'd be my second one. 
and then the last one is, and it's in the, the rules, but make sure and deliver copies of your pleadings five days before a hearing. Um, and especially since, you know, the court's no different. We're all in a cost cutting uh, manner right now with budget issues. And so if you filed a, you know, 30 page brief, I'm not going to print it, it you know, bring me a copy of it. I'll, I'll read it online, but I probably won't be as attentive to it because I can't highlight it and make notes and write my questions on it. And I know some judges don't even do that. They, they will only read it if it's been submitted. So it's, it's a rule you're supposed to do it anyway, but I think it's a good reminder to make sure and drop off any pleadings five days before the hearing. And so that the judge can make sure and have that um, to review before the docket. So we're lucky today because we have you here to give us some insight about practicing specifically in front of you. Um, and so give us a few to do's and what I'll call please don't do <laughs> when we're in, in, in front of you or practicing in your courtroom. And, and it's kind of different because I've had two very unique dockets because I've had the domestic docket and then now I've had a juvenile docket, which is primarily a, a DA and a public defender um, and, and some, my contract attorneys and a few private attorneys. So it's kind of a varied types of hearings I've had and practice I've had. But what I think carries across all of that is prepare for the hearing and um, that sometimes means you need to call opposing counsel beforehand to see if there can be an agreement, especially with COVID and our, our staggered schedules. We cannot put cases on hold anymore. And so before you would show up at nine o'clock, announce you're in talks, put a case on hold, come in at 1130 and hopefully get a hearing. And I don't have that practice on a juvenile docket because I have generally the same set of attorneys, but I know downtown that all has stopped and that requires you before the hearing to have that discussion and to see if there can be any resolution. So before a hearing, talk to your client, prepare them for the hearing, um, make sure they're, you address appropriate courtroom behavior to them, know what they're gonna say on certain things make sure you have all your exhibits ready, make sure you have all your reports to the courts or to each other and just un try to use time as wisely as you can. Um, and you're not gonna, at least on my previous docket and docket now, you're not gonna be allowed three hours in the courthouse to do everything that you need to do before you're hearing. So I think it just requires a lot of preparation beforehand to make sure everything's ready. Since this is Oklahoma Appeals, the podcast, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you something related to appeals. So do you have any tips you could share with practitioners in your trial court on how to set themselves up for success in the event that the matter does end up on appeal? I have a few things. I, I checked with my court reporter because she is the one that usually deals with the process from my order to the appeal a lot more than I deal with it. And so I always ask her. Um, and then I just have a few things that I've seen on my side, but check your exhibits, make sure you know in trial that you admitted everything you think you admitted just because you mentioned it, that doesn't mean it's admitted. And so I tried a bunch of trials on the domestic docket, a bunch of bench trials. Um, and I always tried to go through at the end. I had no responsibility to do that, but I always tried at the end and I read my 
list and I had my court reporter read her list and we compared that to the attorneys and we would still miss exhibits sometimes. And so it's the attorneys need to ensure that every exhibit that they want in is admitted. You can't go back after the fact and really hope that it had been admitted. And so a lot of times that will be a very important exhibit um, that wasn't admitted. So just take a second after you get the verdict, make sure everything was in, make sure the court reporter has a copy of it, that it wasn't an exhibit that snuck away. Make sure your witnesses can be heard. It's really hard right now, especially with masks, but I generally give one warning that I can't hear. And then after that, I instruct my court reporter to take down whatever she can hear, that it's not it's not the court's responsibility to ensure that the witness is completely audible. Um, after I've, I've made that warning, I usually do it twice, but after that, it gets really frustrating. And so the attorneys just need to make, if they're your witness, make sure that the witness can be heard. And that's, that's really difficult sometimes, especially now with masks and face shields and plexiglass and everything else that we're dealing with. So just make sure that the witness's testimony is getting down accurately and they can be heard. Whenever you do big names or give dollar figures, use the numbers correctly or spell out the names. That's difficult in a record sometimes. Um, and then I thought there was an interesting discussion on your prior podcast with the referee with Mr. Rogers about motions for new trial. And I, we saw a lot of those on the domestic docket. And so that was a very interesting discussion. It seems that, and I don't know why, but on the domestic docket, there's a lot of motions to reconsider, which it's hard to find that in a statute anywhere. That would always <laughs> be my, my comment back to them. Um, and so I didn't know if that was to set up on an appeal and so it was an interesting, interesting discussion y'all had on a motion for new trial, because I kind of echo a lot of what he said as to that. I would get a lot of motions for new trial, which is somewhat limiting the issues that could be on appeal when they appeal the denial of the motion for a new trial. Appreciate very much, Judge Sheila Stinson, for spending some time with us today and coming on the podcast. Check out the show's website at oklahomaappeals.com and follow the show on Twitter at Oklahoma Appeals, where we post court news and other items of interest for Oklahoma lawyers. And we'll be back with a new episode every other Wednesday. So until next time, bye-bye.